Welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. Today we are talking to our friend Andre Henry. Buildings whizzing by in the night. Street signs, street lines, turning the light beams, yeah. Hyperdrive, yeah. The only whip on the road, on our way home. Smelling like sweat and cologne. Singing along to the radio. High on some history, we just rode red and blue, red and blue, red and blue. Flashing lights. Hide your crown window down, toss your pride. Ten and two, ten and two, ten and two. Guard your life. Life in black and white. We are really excited to bring you this conversation today. And just as a fair warning, um, we talk about some really sensitive topics in really deep and authentic ways. So content warning for sexual assault and racialized trauma and probably some other things in there that I'm probably forgetting. We wanted to do this episode a little bit differently because Andre is not just um, an activist, but an artist. And so throughout this episode, you will hear um, Andre's art and music woven into the episode as we talk about Andre's new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And just so you know, we're actually going to be doing all the white friends I couldn't keep for our next book club. So if you want to join that, um, you can join our Patreon community or when we post it onto our social media. Be sure to comment and let us know so that we can reach out to you and invite you into that space. Hopefully the conversation today will really help you see the beauty um, of the conversations that we're going to have as we discuss Andre's book and not just Andre's book, but social revolution as we continue our current series discussing the moment of now. Thank you so much for bearing with us as we took our time to get this episode out and life has been happening and so we're actually figured we're just going to make an episode about the life happening and invite you into some authentic relationship in that way as well as always you can join our patreon community to continue to support the work you can subscribe to the permission to be newsletter Um, and we're always looking for other opportunities and ways to be in community um this is tommy and if you don't know i'm going to be leading a legacy trip with my dear friend letty gore who is a historian and so if you're interested in that we'll post a link um that you can get more information about uh legacy trips in general and then we'll see you on the other side.
hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. <laughs> what do we do? Uh, we, we leave our F-bombs in and... Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're going to keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Challenge some narratives. Why, why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This is, um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent, when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, I mean, A Black Man with Hope is an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to another lovely episode of the Permission to Be podcast. <laughs> we have been uh, <laughs> laughing it up already with... <laughs> Our 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 dear dear friend Andre Henry's in the house today. <laughs> What's up, Andre? Hey, thanks for having me. I again. mean, again. yes, yeah. thanks for thanks for coming again. Like <laughs> <laughs> we also have in house Olivia and Becca. Woo woo! Hey, hi, and. We are gonna we're we're gonna talk about your book, Andre. All the white friends I couldn't keep. Wonderful. Um, but all right, before we do that though, we kind of already started it. We mm-hmm. the off mic version, but the on mic <laughs> version of how are we coming into the space today? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm coming in a bit drained. <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. is going on in my personal life, but I'm also really I'm excited to talk with you all. This is energizing. Ah, so good to hear. So good to hear. I I'm actually a little tired today, but like, you know how like you're you're tired and you don't have. Like, if this was anything else, I would not have the energy for it. But because it's, like, you, it's Becca, it's Olivia, I'm like, oh, all right, bet, I'll be there. (laughs) 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 So, like, I don't know what that says as as much as, like, there's a comfort that I'm coming into the space with. And that feels really, really good. Like, and I can just be myself of like hell yeah i'm tired but also i'm with my friends tonight and this is going to be dope ass conversation yeah <laughs> i forgot about the time difference for a minute i'm like yeah it is nighttime for y'all <laughs> yes yes it is the night is young here right the sun is still i get jealous about that all the time because i'm like would i in theory have more energy if the sun was still out but i think then i'm like why would i want more energy 
that are that's not attached to capitalism. <laughs> 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 Becca, Olivia, what's up? I'm amused. That's so. If I had to, that's just one word, amused, on many different levels. But, uh, just highly amused. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay i feel like so we're laughing because this is the second meeting we've had today with like i've had with olivia and becca and the the content of those meetings have been full of fun stuff that you know if you're not in my patreon you'll you'll just miss out on so oh, boom oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so on that note i'm coming in excited for all the new patrons that tommy's gonna have <laughs> and we're gonna have a good time and then you can find out what we really talk about in the permission to be meetings oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah do 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 <laughs> <laughs> So Andre, you wrote a book. I did. How how does it feel to? You're you're already a writer, but like, is, is there like a uh, um, as much as we crit- critique hierarchy, but is there like a hierarchy of feeling for like writing an article or maintaining a blog as opposed to like delivering a book into the world? Um, I I would say that maybe before I wrote a book, I had like I thought of like writing a book as like climbing Kilimanjaro or something, right? Like, and it is a huge accomplishment, right? But now that I have a book published, I'm like, you know, things feel pretty normal. (laughs) (laughs) Things things feel pretty normal. And um, I wasn't expecting for it to feel as normal as they do. What no one told me about writing a book is that I would be very tired after doing it and I'd be very drained after doing it and um that I would not feel like writing for a while I mean maybe maybe everyone doesn't have that feeling in particular because I know some people who like Lisa Sharon Harper who just she just released a book in February and she's still writing 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 you know I put that book out in March and I was like yeah I don't know when you're getting an article from me again. The gift of that sister's pen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, to that to that point though, also, like I would say, I know that I know that many people, like, because before I wrote my book, many people were like, Andre, like, you're like a writer. Like you're you're a good writer. And I'm like, yeah, but some people are like Sister Mary Clarence telling you, like, if you wake up in the morning and all you can think about is writing, then you're a writer. <laughs> like, some people are like that kind of writer, you know? Yes! You better <laughs> take us to the hope epic <laughs> of the 90s. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm not that kind of writer, you know? Like, I'm a. I'm a musician first, you know, like when I think, when I think about what is a good day, like I, I play my guitar, I play the keyboard, I try to write a song every day. So that's the thing I can do every day. 
But writing like some of my friends do, like about, you know, social justice and all these things, that's that's just not the kind of writer that I am. Now, I did write a blog every single week for about four years, (laughs) you know, up up to the publication of this book. And it was because, you know, of the, well, not even... I'm, I'm not. I'm not counting a bunch of. No, it's not four years. It was like 2015, seven, eight years, something like that. I don't know. Seven yeah. Wow. Wow. Right. And so, like, I make that point. I guess uh, in the moment to say, like, not not just because I had this passion for writing, because, but just because I I really felt that this is important. You know, the kind of the message that I want to get out there about social progress and systemic racism and you know eventually nonviolent struggle you know that was what drove me so I was even surprised like even before I published the the book and you know so many people when I think it was around the time that I wrote an article about this media company I used to work for where racism was so um yeah there's a racially mm-hmm. sensitive climate right and that went viral and then you know all these people like man you're such a good writer it's like wow okay yeah. I guess I'll keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I what, what I would say to that, Andre, is that um, mm. it's one thing to be able to put a noun and a verb together, um, mm. and it's another thing to do it in a compelling fashion. Um, right. And so I am that writer's writer who like like I get high on metaphor and simile. I went two years without sleeping, but at two o'clock in the morning, I'd be up writing poems and essays and then like texting mm-hmm. Tommy and Becca at three o'clock in the morning. Like mm-hmm. The muse arrived at 4 a.m. So I am that person. Um, mm-hmm. And when I got my hard copy, I said, I'm not getting the Kindle because I want to read this on the page. But because we were going out of town, I got the, um, I mean, no, I got the hard copy. I said I wasn't going to get the audible, mm-hmm. but I did because I was like, well, I'm going to spend all this time in a car. It's a great time to listen. And I am not a good listener. And your mm-hmm. book held my attention with you reading it. And so to me, that tells the story because it's one thing to be able for me to hold my attention with my eyes on the page. It takes mm-hmm. a different level for Olivia because I have a touch of ADHD to engage me through listening. And mm-hmm. you mastered both, which is not shocking because I had heard snippets of it in, in our writing group you know, when you Mm -hmm. first started going down this path. But I'm just going to say, you may say you're not a writer, but I am a good writing snob, so to speak. Becca and Tommy (laughs) will tell you that. And so like a lot of stuff that's like everybody is raving about, I was like, this is boring. This is not a compelling narrative. It did not hold my attention. And so for me, it's not, the content is very important, but if you can't present the content in a way that is going to command the attention of the reader, then Mm -hmm. your purpose is lost. And so Mm -hmm. you get an A plus from me and my husband. (laughs) We were both listening. I appreciate that. And And when I say that about, about writing, I mean, just like you said, like, you know, I get that way about writing songs, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where I'm, that's where I'm about metaphor and simile and, you know, sense down language and all that kind of stuff, which of course I use in the book, you know, like I'm using the same tools, but in a way, I mean, they're very, they're very different, right? I have mm-hmm. a lot more space to say what I want to say in a book, mm-hmm. which is really helpful because like in the song, it's like, 
All right, bro, you got 120 words. (laughs) (laughs) What you want to (laughs) say? It must be good to be you. You only believe what you want. And anything that you don't know. Well, that just couldn't be true. chapter of a book I get 3,500 words 5,000 words that was my goal with each chapter was yeah. under 5,000 words right that's a lot of words mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so you get you have a lot more room to play with but you know I think about some people like that's you know that's their discipline right like they know like the tradition like when I talk to someone like Dante right Dante Stewart mm-hmm. you know and Dante is like, you know, he's naming all these different authors and all these different writers and, you know, what they were doing and that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know all that stuff. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how I talk about music. Like, mm-hmm. talk to me about music. I'll start telling you, like, why why Billy Joel is one of the greatest songwriters to have ever lived. And I don't care how cheesy that sounds. I will tell you why. I don't understand how Dolly Parton's nine to five has not already started a socialist revolution. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'll give you all the context of like where reggae music came from and how Jamaica helped upstart hip hop music and all that kind of stuff. Like that's my tradition, but you know, they, they overlap for me. And I think a part of the audio books, the reason, cause I did the audio book really fast. And it's because like, I, you know, I'm, I was a pastor for seven years. You know, I have a lot of experience public speaking. I'm a performer. You know, I sing. You know, I'm I'm comfortable in the studio. A lot of authors they write, they don't necessarily you know do the mm-hmm. the the other part with the speaking and stuff like that. But like mm-hmm. I'm what I'm talking to you right now on the same microphone that I record my songs on. These are the same headphones that I I bought in 2012 to record my first EP and stuff like that. You know, my keyboard's right next to me. <laughs> so we can see it. So, you know, those gifts come in, but I appreciate y'all, you know. And I've heard this a lot about the book, about, like, people telling me, like, they can't, it's hard for them to put down, or they listen to it in one sitting. <laughs> my dad listened to it. I think he might have listened to it more than once, you know. Um which is like really humbling and um, I appreciate a lot because I was really, in, I didn't know what to anticipate, you know, with it coming out. Mm-hmm. You have a yeah. very, you have a very soothing and calming voice. Mm-hmm. And Thank you. Um, there are some audiobooks where like the book is playing and I am physically in my seat listening, but I'm at Whole Foods shopping. <laughs> 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 it's like my body heard were, you know, but like my mind has left. And um, that is not the experience I um, I had with yours. So kudos to you on 
compelling storytelling and interweaving that with mm-hmm. history and fact. Not everybody is um, skillfully able to do so. Mm-hmm. There's so so much about that dialogue got me really um, hyped up because I'm just thinking about the amazing artistry that we have in this space right now. Um, Olivia, you being a writer, Andre, you being a writer, but also musically, but then going a deep, uh, a, a layer deeper, the, the historical knowledge that's there. And then I was also part of that, like that same sentiment of like, okay, read it. I, 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 I read this in like one setting. I didn't want to put it down. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm looking at this book, like, damn, this is like a manual. This is, mm-hmm. this is like, I think it's good. It's, comp- it's good that it's compelling, but also I think for the particular healing that I think this book holds, I don't think you can consume it all in one mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. and really get the the depth and, and the benefit mm-hmm. of it. And so I'm really interested to maybe spend some time bringing out some of those points that that meet us here in this context that we're in. Because I think, you know, book came out in February. We were in a particular place um, in society. But even as you've been writing it, like we've gone through... Uh, the Donald Trump presidency, we've gone through an insurrection, we've gone through mm-hmm. uprisings, we've gone through all these things. And then we're recording this on the heels of the Supreme Court leak in a lot of conversations around mm-hmm. uh, bodily autonomy and the future of the West and the, the United States as an empire, watching it crumble before us. So... I'm curious, what are, one, tell tell the audience uh, about the book. Um, I have a feeling most people that listen to the podcast will already have heard some things about the book, but for, and that off chance that there's some people <laughs> listening that are new, um, what are some things that you want to say about the book? And then maybe how, uh, I'm curious about where should we anchor the conversation given the context that we find ourselves in? And can we start with the title of the book? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good job, Blake. We do this all the time. About. We do this all the time. And it's Andre has has written a book called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, uh. Okay, so the name of the book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, <laughs> came from a blog that I wrote in 2019. It was an open letter to um, a bunch of white folks that I grew up with or that I met, you know, as I was, yeah, that I met uh, along my my life journey. Many of them close friends, some of them even I considered family, but they were online, some of them, online saying things like, Andre's a racist, Andre hates white people, all this kind of thing. And they, they were saying that stuff because over the past few years before then, I've been online, you know, speaking up about systemic racism from my perspective. And by then, I'd kind of given, not kind of, I'd given up on trying to speak, you know, in the way that many people feel 
that you should about these things because there's a common misconception out there that if you just if you just talk really nicely and rationally to white people about racism, then you know you'll have a civil conversation about it. You'll see their point, they'll see your point, and you'll hug and you know you'll cure people of their anti-blackness one person at a time. <laughs> I had given up on that. Systematic oppression. Yes. Yes. I'd given up on that, you know, seeing as how it's bullshit. Um, and, um, you know, that was partly why these white people had been on and saying these things about me because I had been strident, I think is the word, in the way that I speak about these things. So I decided, you know, you can't say these things like, I hate white people without a receipt. Show me the text message, show me the blog, show me the screenshot it, post it. You know, there is none, but I never say that. Um, so I wrote uh, what I felt like was a receipt of my love for them. And I wrote them an open letter mm. called to all the white friends I can keep. And I laid out you know, to them why we had been separated, why our relationships had broken down. It was because of their refusal to believe black people, to listen to black people, to join in our struggle for racial justice and all those other things, right? Okay, I'm just gonna pause for a second, right? So a friend of mine has been encouraging has been encouraging me to just use my Jamaican accent. Right? Mm-hmm. And I keep pausing because there are certain verbal pauses in Patwa <laughs> that I'm trying to translate into English. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna keep doing that. So just I'm going to give everyone a quick Patois lesson, okay? So if I say, and I'll insult it, that means, and all those things, right? <laughs> I'll say it slowly. And I'll, you can hear, and I'll, them, them, something, some things, right? And I'll insult right? And all them something. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You soon, Jamaica. All right. So, so, so yeah, I wrote this blog. It went viral. An agent reaches out to me and um, tells me he feels like there might be a book in there. Or no, he, he's sure there's a book in there. And um, I was like, well, you know, you're the professional at selling books. <laughs> so, you know, if you feel like it might be in there, I'm willing to try. And by the time I finished the proposal for the book, I um, had decided that I don't want to... I don't want to address it to white people anymore because I already know they're not listening. And I was exhausted just writing it from that perspective mm. because I ended up writing an outline for a book that basically was like, here's what white people do. And here's why it's that we already have that book. Mm -hmm. We have several of them. Mm -hmm. and so I said, I don't, I don't think we need another. So instead I want to direct, I want to write this book to my former self. Mm -hmm. I want to write this book. I want to write the book that Andre needed when he was begging white people to listen to him. Mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. you know, I wish eight years ago, Black Gabriel would have appeared to me with this book in my mind, with this book in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and Black Gabriel would have said to me, <laughs> I feel like Black Gabriel speaks pop to himself. He's like, <laughs> he's like uh, yeah. He's like, I still not argue with them people then. <laughs> sure. Right? And he hands me a book that has, you know, um, practical insight about how to create 
how, how to move social progress forward and um, giving me permission to not fight with these people. <laughs> Why are y'all laughing so much? You're doing great at integrating the accent, I just got to say. And like, it's, we, have, we have history. So <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I'm watching this unfold in real time and I'm having to, like, this is the first time my nervous system so is getting to experience this. So everybody, everybody's watching. Okay, so Una read the book, right? So you know, <laughs> you know where, you know exactly why, right? Because I'm, it's not even strung right now, right? Right, I'm, right. I'm just, I have it on just a little, just, just a little bit. Just a little drop of patwa coming, coming, right? But, <laughs> If I were talking to my father right now, what? Boy. Okay, so. Where was I? I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. But I want people, I want for people when they, okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Yeah. So let Gabriel give him a book and he gives me permission to not argue with these people. And why y'all keep laughing when I say permission? The reason I okay the the reason I am laughing is because I am the old lady of this bunch. I mean, I'm literally a grandmother, and as I, I'm so I'm so much older than you. But I just like as I l- listened through, I was like, "Damn, he is telling my story." Okay. And so when you're talking about you know oh. being being like you know this nine year old you know afraid of left behind, and so I'm flashing back to my adult self giving the left behind books to every so it just it really so, so, so every time i hear you talk a, a i literally am old enough to be your mother um uh, but i lived this my own version of the same experience and so that's why i can't stop cracking up i'm sorry I yeah. do, and I then, need to, do i need to turn off my camera and hide my face no no and, <laughs> and your authenticity the authenticity no, just, of you i was just curious i was just curious i don't feel any way about it i was just curious because, okay <laughs> I laugh a lot in general when I'm talking to people and what people don't understand is that like if I'm giggling when I'm talking to you, it means it usually means that I feel like I've picked up on who you are, like the core of who you are, and I mm. really enjoy it. Mm. So like I am reveling in the fact <laughs> that you are showing up as your full self in this mm. moment and yes. you are you. Right? Yes. I, I love that. I giggle. And people get, uh, people get offended. Why are you laughing at me? And I can't really explain to them. No, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, I'm laughing with you. you. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying you, right? It's I'm, like exactly. This. I'm enjoying you being you. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Beautiful. So then the last thing Black Gabriel gave me permission to do is to be, is to, um, how would I say this? to actually embrace my my blackness, right? And my my mm. blackness is connected to my Jamaicanness, right? Is 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 African, but it's also connected to my Caribbeanness. Mm. Um and so yeah, so that was the book I wanted to write and that was the book that I set out to write. Even though I, I don't know I say that I say that my publishers would have been happy with the other book. I think they would have. I think my publishers would have been happy if I just wrote a book and was like, hey, white people this is what you need to know about relating to black people. But um, I didn't feel like that's the book that the world needs. Be, um, especially knowing what I know now. What I didn't know when I was writing the book is that a lot of the things that I was describing are just fascism. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I didn't, I didn't know that you know? Mm-hmm. until maybe I was just like, I was maybe halfway through. Uh, I was halfway through editing it the second or third time when I realized, oh wow, like a lot of this is just fashion. Did you make the connection? Oh man! Um, in the chapter "Revolution Now," I'm writing about um, how America needs a fundamental change, right? Mm-hmm. How the root, the it needs radical change, right? And that's when I start understanding fascism because I'm always reading as, as, much, as much as I as much as I can. I'm reading. And so at the t- I was reading while I was writing the book and what I was reading about was imperialism. And um, I was also reading about black anti-fascism. I wanted to understand the black anti-fascist tradition. Hmm. And so I'm reading these texts, you know, um, like We Charge Genocide, which was the letter that um, black activists wrote to the United Nations um about you know what america was doing and all this kind of stuff and so as i'm reading this tradition of black anti-fascism and reading all this information about imperialism and i'm writing this revolution now chapter the connections were just undeniable so then i come across um in in my reading about anti-fascism i read a book called hitler's american model (laughs) And in this book, the author, I can't remember his name, he talks about um, how Nazi legal scholars were studying Jim Crow and studying American imperial policy Mm -hmm. to shape the Nuremberg laws. 
And there was one quote, <laughs> oh my God, and I put it in the book. I made sure it was in the book. And this is actually a part of the book that I keep, I keep hoping that people don't just gloss over too fast. Because there's one legal scholar, one Nazi legal scholar that says, the most important event in the history of, in the Aryan's race to for world domination, that's the, that's what he's saying, for, for world domination, was the founding of the United States of America. <laughs> and so, like, that was, like, me making the connection. Because I, I heard, like, people like Angela Davis and um, the Black Panthers, you know, many Black Panthers and all of them saying that America was fascist, but I didn't really understand but I started reading about fascism and tyranny and all those things <laughs> while I was um, writing that chapter. And it was just undeniable there. Mm. So mm. that was the book I felt like I needed to write was to help people really understand how social, how racial progress is made through nonviolent struggle, because I've been reading that for years. And to also, you know, a big theme of the book is kind of this pulling back the veil on America's myths, the national myths that America uses to cover up all of its violence, which is a part of fascist politics. You know, when you're reading about fascism, it's like fascists always are alluding to a mythic past, right? Mm -hmm. And America has one, (laughs) you know, a very strong one. Yes. So, yeah. Mm. I I came across something the other day and I I think it was, to, I don't know if it was a news segment or what, but white people talking about like the myth of America has failed or the theme that like binds nations together are common myths. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to give much thought to it, but I'm curious your point about fascism and this reliance on a myth and then the fact that nations um there's this assumption that nations to be a a, a nation you are also relying on sort of this common myth mm-hmm. um i don't know where to go with that but i'm like do you is there any do you think that there's there's a connection there because I'm I guess the other yeah. thing that's in the back of my brain is um there's a book called Sovereignty I forget who's the author but in it he's talking about how like nation state sovereignty is one of the things that is going to just get us all killed this this concept oh, wow. of, of sovereign nation yeah. mm-hmm. um and so like is it I mean, from your perspective, is it true that like nations have to have a common myth or um, I don't know it, when I when I think of myth of how, how I was taught in grade schools about myth um, is it's just a story that maybe happened, didn't necessarily have to happen. And to me, that's a bit concerning. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about this and I'm, I'm pulling from Paulo Freire. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, pedagogy of the oppressed mm-hmm. and from a book I'm reading right now called Solidarity Economics I can't remember the authors right now I'm reading too many books right now I read six books last week and then 
I'm reading like three or four now. <laughs> so I can't always remember where each piece is. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And I'll connect this to my own book. I'll, I'll try. Um, so a part of this, a part of the context that I think you're, you're alluding to, Tommy, is that human, humans are a different kind of animal because we have a perception of ourselves apart from our environment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right, like my yeah. friend, my friend Jeline, her dog, Kai, is here. And Kai doesn't know that Kai is a dog. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? And Kai never sits down and reflects on his life and says, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> What is my life about? What are my core values? <laughs> you know, like he, he never has, he never is never gonna have that conversation with himself. Right? Kai's like, oh, that butt scratch felt real good. <laughs> yeah, every, he's just a part of his environment, right? Um, but we do, right? We do, and that's how we relate to our reality. And the way that we manage all of this information that we're taking in is by telling stories. We put narrative frames around things. We can make sense of our lives, right? And so in a sense, we're always going to be, uh, we are storytelling animals and we're always going to be storytelling animals. And so we're always going to create narratives and stories around the things that we're doing, you know, whether that's nation building or, you know, making a, you know, making a family or whatever, you know, that like we're always going to have some story. You, your decision to move to this city or that city or why you date this person or that, you're always putting that in the context of a story. Right. Um, and so in that way, yes, nations do need a story. Right. They, they mm-hmm. have to come up with some reason that, to make meaning of the project that they're that they're creating. Now. Does that story necessarily have to be oppressive? Does it have to include hierarchy? Does it have to justify inequality? No. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. But those are the stories that dominate the societies that we live in, many of us, right? I would say most of us, even the non white nations, because the British Empire was so big, it deposited its own uh, ideology and practice all over the world. So you have black countries that still practice the same white violence that established them, mm. right? Mm-hmm. All right, we got a little, we got a little off track. So let's come back, right? So, um, so, but yes, those those stories exist and those stories make sense of things. And so, part of it is, you know, part of the challenge that we have is to create a story that creates a broader we because the stories that we have create all of these us's and them's, right? Yeah. That justify all kinds of violence and inequality. But those stories are often never presented in that way. And that's what I'm writing about in like the first two chapters of the book, right? The first the, the introduction is kind of introducing this idea of, a, of apocalypse, right? Because it's talking about how the empires are very good at creating stories. And, you know, because I, because I once thought I would be an Old Testament professor, I had to take those classes where I learned about Babylon and uh, Assyria and Rome and all those places. And they have, um, they all have their own ideology, right? And so... You know, every one of these empires are 
displacing people, they're killing people, they're massacring people, they're they are um what do you call that? Exiling people and deporting, you know, all the all this violence. But the Assyrians say, if we don't kill off all these other nations, the world will end. So that's their imperial ideology. We have to mm-hmm. stop the end of the world by conquering everyone around us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Babylon's ideology is Nebuchadnezzar is the chosen gardener of the gods. And so if he conquers this nation or that nation, then they're going to flourish under his rule. And in Rome, they call it the peace of Rome. And if everyone would just unite, would just be united under Caesar's rule, then the world would know peace. They always do that. And so America has its own manifest destiny. The pilgrims talking about they're a city on a hill you know, all these other things. And those are the stories that were passed down to me and to many of us, all of us growing up. That's what we taught in school. I just watched a special about the Philippines from last week tonight with John Oliver. And they they interviewed these children to talk about what was martial law like before. And and (laughs) I'm laughing because I want to say pick me so bad. On the picnic, they never talk about the martial law, right? <laughs> and, and these children are saying things like, "Well, I think that martial law was a good thing, and my, uh, I heard that the Philippines became more prosperous or more peaceful under martial law." You know, these are the things that we are indoctrinated in mm-hmm. as part of as as part of being part of a nation, right? Yeah. And so, I received that kind of teaching when I was young. Remember, my parents are from Jamaica. And while we're at it, because I don't know if we're going to get there. So, you know, I, 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 taught this, I, taught this, I taught this way because when my parents, my, my mother's already gone, but when my father is dead, I don't want for, I want for people to know exactly where my ancestors come from as soon as they hear my voice. Mm. So that's why, you know, that's why I'm using, you know, more of my accent and, and all of that. So anyway, but remember, my parents come from Jamaica. Right. They moved to Atlanta. They moved to Stone Mountain in the 80s, the 1980s. And my father tells, tells me that when he moves in, that when he moved into Stone Mountain, first off, and I saw this as a, as a kid, I didn't really realize it. But I remember seeing as I grew up is that most of the white families that lived around us moved out of the neighborhood. That was one thing. Hmm. But before they moved out, because moving out was their was their last resort. The first thing that they did. Or I shouldn't say first. I don't know. Earlier, what they did, what they start, <laughs> they start putting up Confederate flags mm-hmm. around Stone Mountain. Intimidation, right? Now, my family's from Jamaica. We don't know what the Confederate flag is, so we just start putting up Jamaican flags and Trinidadian flags. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know what that was. So, so anyway, I, I I just want to bring bring in the fact that my my parents didn't know this stuff, you know. So when I talk about Stone Mountain and the huge Confederate monument that's on the side of that rock, the largest basswood carving in the world and the biggest Confederate monument in the country, you know, they couldn't tell me anything about the things I wrote about in the book about it being the place where the Klan was reborn and it being um, commissioned by Klan sympathizers. And, you know, all those things. They didn't know those things. 
But I also didn't learn those things in school because the things that we learned in school, you know, we didn't talk about slavery very much, not in detail, Mm -hmm. right? I knew that it happened, but I, I didn't, of course, I didn't know the extent to which how brutal and there's, there's not even words. That's why I use the ma'afa so much in uh, the term, the ma'afa so much in the book, because I learned that from a, a woman who was a mentor of mine. And it just feels so appropriate to refer to it by a, a non-English word, because I don't believe that any English word can do it justice. Can you say the mm-hmm. word again? Ma'afa. Ma'afa. You know? you know, I just don't feel like any English word can do it justice. Like this, this... It's like how uh, many Jews refer to the Holocaust as the Shoah, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, to me, you know, the Ma'afa. I, I keep pausing when I try to talk about it because I just, anyway, we didn't mm-hmm. learn how bad it was. In fact, there there is this widespread belief that stems back to just after the Civil War that maybe slavery wasn't that bad. And white people very much wanted to promote this idea that black people would have preferred to be enslaved. You know, that we were happy as enslaved people. That's where all the minstrelsy and all these other things come from, right? Like, and those cartoons, you know, there's, there's you know, that, you know, the song, the ice cream truck plays. <laughs> you know, that song is Nigga Love a Watermelon, right? That's the name, that's, that's the Nigga Love a Watermelon, ha Nigga Love a Watermelon, ha right? So. Wait, stop, stop, yeah. stop, <laughs> just stop. stop. You done done it now. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Just just let me finish and then and then because I don't want to lose it, right? Uh, okay. So they were very committed to painting this picture that we were happy and contented as um enslaved people, as inferior beings, as second class citizens, and all that kind of stuff. That, so that's where all that stuff comes from. Right? And that is and then they want to they wanted to reframe the reason for the Civil War as just an issue of states' rights and they're rising up against the tyranny of big government and government overreaching all kinds of things. That's what we inherited so that they could continue to push this national myth that America is just this this hero of democracy in the world, right? And that was the education that, you know, many of us received. And so there's this pulling back of the veil I'm trying to do. I see the children across the sea Left on the shore like trash and debris I hear a nation sigh relieved But it doesn't have to be Doesn't have to be this way
Sure, I made that connection. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. Olivia, have you recovered? Are no, you... she hasn't. Look at her face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, just very brief. <laughs> Nigger love a watermelon. Say what? <laughs> like, <laughs> Those are the lyrics to the song. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I'm promising. Yeah. Yeah. You've just. You've just. You've just now determined what the next hour after we're done recording this is going to be for Olivia. So yeah, just... like, okay, so I want I just want to point this out, right? Like, this is partly why I was in the hospital a few weeks ago because, like, when you're living with this level of awareness of the anti-blackness around you, right? <laughs> like, how are you not going to go crazy? Because mm-hmm. I hear that song in Inglewood. That, that song, you know, I mean, I know, like, we've written other songs now, Turkey in the Straw and all that kind of stuff, right? Because, obviously, you can't sing Nigga Love a Watermelon in school, you know? But... <laughs> but you know. I don't think there's enough news outlets to cover... but i mean this is that post-apocalyptic reality right right right. think about the thing that we're doing or that i'm trying to that i'm saying that apocalypses do is that they pull back the veil and you see the ugliness of the world you see you know the monsters and the political monsters and the political violence that is usually hidden like i think about like the matrix which i did think about a lot when i was writing the book because the new matrix movie was going to come out as well like before the book was Done it. So I watched, I rewatched the Matrix trilogy several times before I finished the book. And I, I thought about like how terrible the real world that the quote unquote real world that Neo and the Nebuchadnezzar and Morpheus on the live in, like they're eating the slop and the sky is scorched and they're running from machines and all this kind of stuff. I think that John does the same thing in the book of Revelation when he says, this is what Rome really looks like. Look at this many, many headed monster, you know, killing all of these people, you know, and I think that. You know, I, I know that for some people it's it's too bleak to talk about America in that way. I'm not saying that there's nothing good about living here, you know, but when you pull back the veil, you can see, like, you can trace so much of the modern structure and the arrangement of our society back to its roots in a slaveocracy, you know? Mm-hmm. And we can mm-hmm. change that. It doesn't have to be this way, you know? Yes. But if you're going to change it... <laughs> <laughs> But if we're going to change it, then we have to at least admit that it's there, right? That that's yeah. what we're talking about. And a key point that you said earlier, you talked about um, the school system. And there was, uh, I love that illustration of where you were talking about picturing the column and like at the top or like a Roman structure and there's a column 
at the top, which is a problem. And then there's all these systems and structures that hold yeah. up that, uh, that problem. And that's under this chapter of like building our own tables, which yeah. is right after you went off about fuck your unity, but, <laughs> but in the best way possible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's like in this. Okay, so um, there's like a turning point in the book where the early chapters you see me really trying to tiptoe around white people's feelings, and I'm trying to be very diplomatic and trying to appeal to their reason and their goodwill and all that kind of stuff and get them on my side. And then I learned that no matter how nicely I talk to them, like it doesn't matter because what really matters is how they've entered the conversation, right? Have you entered this conversation as someone? who's willing to actually dialogue. Back to Paulo Freire, because he talks about the conditions for dialogue. And one of those conditions is humility. You can't have, and this is also touch on that unity chapter, right? Because Mm -hmm. everywhere, when we talk about racism and we talk about how Black people talk about racism, you have white people basically saying, well, you sound angry and, you know, all those kinds of things, right? Oh, you know, clamoring for civil conversation on all those kinds of things, right? Okay, but basically what they're saying is that we should be willing to dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I bring in Freire because he talks about how humility is a condition for true dialogue. We can't actually have a real dialogue if you enter the conversation feeling like you know everything and I know nothing. If you mm. feel like I am your inferior, you feel like you have nothing to learn, nothing to gain from this conversation, nothing to gain from listening to me. We can't have a true dialogue, right? Mm. So that's why, like, that's a huge, I, that's why I said I wish I'd read Pedagogy of the Oppressed before I wrote this book. I would have included more that I gleaned from that book. But he's saying something in a much smarter way than I am in the book. But basically, you know, what I learned is that the conditions for true dialogue were never there with the people that I left behind. And that's why I had to stop talking to them, right? And the unity that people are calling for and that they imagine can happen is impossible, you know? Because if you are invested in my oppression, what are we going to unite around? Oppressing me? Make it make sense. (laughs) It won't. Ever. (laughs) Cause me not do that. (laughs) 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 You know? I'm not doing that. You want so what are we going to join forces to do exactly? We can't join forces around my oppression, and you don't want to join forces with me around my liberation. Mm. Mind you, my liberation is your liberation. Yes, right. 100%. So you don't want to join forces around me around your liberation either. So we're at an impasse. Okay. Mm. All right. So what we have to do. I'm arguing in the book is we have to build the actual thing that brings racial progress because hugging white people and singing Kumbaya, not going to do it, you know? And I remember one, one interviewer who talked to me about the book, he hadn't read it, which I understand. You know, I don't expect every interviewer to read the book. I don't read every book before I interview someone who has the time. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I appreciate that. But even if you hadn't, I would, you know, I understand, you know. So he reads a quote about the book and it's or from which they left out 
a crucial word. So I kept getting in trouble because the copy for this promo for the book kept leaving out one word. And so it's like, it's the part where I say civil discussions and diversity hires and those kind of things are not going to solve the problem. But I said those things alone won't help, but alone mm-hmm. won't help. Very key. Very key. That's key. They, <laughs> they do have a role, but they're not the thing. And so the guy is reading this back to me and it says, I disagree with you, by the way. And he's like, you know, telling, and he's like, well, why won't it help? And I said, okay, answer me this. How many national discussions on race have we had? If that worked, would we still be having this conversation? No. Mm-hmm. Now tell me, how did the buses get desegregated and the water fountains and the restaurants and all those things? How did the voting rights bill come to be? Did Dr. King lead a, did Dr. King drop down into Birmingham and lead mass civil conversations with white people, with white races? No, didn't happen, right? It's always, 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 always social movements that move the needle forward for freedom. Always. Whether it is and whether it's an armed uprising or a mass nonviolent movement, the way that people get free is for oppressed people to organize amongst themselves and withdraw their labor, withdraw their dollars, occupy some shit. You know, they, they have like, that is how it works. And so that's what I'm calling for in the book, right? But a part of that, and to your building your own tables, is that we have to have some kind of institutional power. Social progress has always been won by a few outraged, organized, ordinary people. They weren't born on Mount Olympus. They weren't deputized through some angelic visitation. They were just ordinary, outraged people who decided they had enough of oppression. We don't need any messiahs. We need ordinary, organized, outraged people. We do! Nazis took her husband, she was shocked and terrified. My God, can you even imagine? But she chased the paddy wagon as tears fell from her eyes down to Rose Street where the soldiers kept the captive. A sea of angry women gathered in the snow. Shouting at the soldiers, saying, let our husbands go. The soldiers drew their weapons, but the crowd refused to move. That's how those women overthrew Hitler's evil plan. And if the people won before, then we can win again. People of the 
And it doesn't have to be the established institutions. Now, I did include a little bit in there to say, I think that there's an interim phase possibly where, uh, you know, black people having power in established institutions could be helpful. I do think that uh, Daniel Hill, that Daniel Hunter, uh, the activist who wrote Building the Movement to End the New Jim Crow, would call them ad advocates. And advocates have a role. But I'm calling for civil resistance. And civil resistance is by definition non-institutional in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not about... So civil resistance is not everybody get out and vote. That's not civil resistance. Sure, go vote, but we didn't vote away Jim Crow. <laughs> we shut down cities. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so that's what I'm calling for. And to do that, we need institutional power. And that means two things to me. Uh, one is that we need, like, the institutional resources like we saw in the civil rights movement. Like this is why the churches and the schools, the labor unions and all those things were in the vanguard of the civil rights movement because they already had, they already had communication networks. They had leaders that a bunch of people already respected. They had, um, you know, they had all of this infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, and part of what is missing from our movements today is that we don't have a lot of in infrastructure because we got a lot of anti-strategy people out here who feel like if you just get millions of people out on the streets and yell defund the police enough, M&Ms will fall from the sky and it'll happen. Shots fired! <laughs> <laughs> but as we say in Patois, nothing no go so. That's not how it works. <laughs> right? Preach. And then, and then Preach we, on. Preach and, on. And then we wonder at the end of the summer, where did everybody go? And at worst, some activists and organizers start yelling, where is your outrage? You guys weren't serious about this. Y'all were faking, da-da-da-da-da. But no, the thing is, is that this kind of revolutionary action, especially through nonviolent struggle, takes years. The Montgomery bus boycott was 13 months. Mm. Uh, in, uh, in Gandhi's movement, you're talking, I, you know, over a decade of, of, of nonviolent work in Serbia's case, also a decade, it takes years, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that you are able to sustain movement over years is by building structure, right? Mm. Giving people roles, giving them things to do, right? And then if people start getting tired and they get, and they get burnt out, then you have a structure to, you know, let them take their break and you have someone else to come continue the work and you're recruiting people and all those things. That's how it works, yeah. right? So that's yes. a part of the institutional power that we need, right? Is the actual, you know, civil rights, I mean, human rights institutions, movement institutions that are training people, recruiting people, and putting people into the right roles and all those kinds of things. There's another kind of institutional power that I want to also bring up, though, that, which is the building of the alternatives, right? I talked to Erica Chenoweth the other day. She's the scholar that brought us, uh, one of the scholars that brought up the uh, three and a half percent rule, you know, that no regime was able to withstand the active nonviolent resistance of just three and a half percent of the population in a massive study that they did years ago. And Erica told me that around the world, we are losing more battles to nonviolent struggle than we're winning. 
Wait, say that last um, part again. You're losing more than you're winning. Is that what you said? We're losing more battles through nonviolent struggle than we're winning. Okay. And the reason why we're losing more battles is not because nonviolence is weak or something like that. It's because people are not using the most effective tactics and strategies of nonviolent struggle that have been used throughout the years. And this is connected to the fact that we are we are not given a good education about how these things work, mm -hmm. right? And so, like I said, the people who think that if we just get enough people to go out to the streets and yell, we don't like this, and, you know, uh, Mufasa will return to Pride Rock and it will rain again, um, are, <laughs> don't understand that... <laughs> it's, a, it's a game at this point. It's like, okay, what... what? What's another <laughs> Okay. Um, is that there's, there's a, there are classifications of nonviolent action. And in this first classification, it's pro protest and persuasion, right? And those, those are expressive politics. That Those are going out and saying what we feel and all those kind of things. And it, it raises awareness. It can bring people into the movement. It can recruit people. It can get um, spirits raised and all those kinds of things. And then the next movement is, and the, the next classification we might call um, civil disobedience. People have heard, right? And civil disobedience is, is the kind of thing, like they make an injunction against protest, you protest. They, you know, um, you know that, that kind of thing, right? And then there's interventions, right? Um, and in those latter classifications, you start thinking about, okay, well, what is the nature of this oppression, right? If it's economic, then maybe we need to organize a boycott. Maybe we need to organize some strikes or something like that, right? That's just for instance. Now, a protest has its role and it does its thing. It's important. But without the muscle of some of those more uh, disruptive tactics like the boycotts and the strikes, the powers that be can just ignore you they don't care. They don't care if you don't like what they're doing. They already know that. When we go out into the streets and say, we don't like this with all our signs and our posters and all this kind of stuff, we're telling them something they already know. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't put it doesn't put as much pressure on them as if they start losing customers mm -hmm. and if their workers refuse to work, you know? Yeah. So that's why we're losing more battles than, than we're winning. Okay, so right now, when we talk about the Supreme Court, you know, that you mentioned, right? And there is, there are ways that civil resistance can be used to pressure the, pressure the courts to, to actually respond to the will of the people because we know that the majority of people in the U.S. actually are in support of reproductive rights, right? It's like two-thirds. <laughs> we are literally under minority rule right now. Yes. You know? Yes. Um... So people have pe the the idea of a general strike has come back to the fore. I hear people talking about general strike, general strike, general strike. I am all for the general strike. Oh my God, dear eight pound six ounce black Jesus, please. <laughs> in my lifetime, might I live through a general strike? <laughs> I would love that. However. <laughs> People cannot just strike because they have bills to pay. They have families to feed, 
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in order for the people, and remember, it it's not necessarily, there are some people, I would say, or some people in certain professions for whom a strike is more disruptive than others, right? I work for a nonprofit. And if I say I'm not working today, that now have nothing to do with the Supreme Court. <laughs> they're, not going, they're not going to feel that, right? Um, but, you know, but there are medical professionals who if they participate in civil disobedience or something like that, that's going to mean more, right? But Let me incre- tell you, ooh, organizing some nurses is a task. Yes, <laughs> but for, for them to be able to do that, right, um, we need to know, like, if they get arrested, are they going to, do we have money to bail them out, mm-hmm. right? If they don't work, you know, uh, will will they be able to eat? You know, can we pay them to strike, that kind of thing? And that's the other kind of institutional power that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. is well, the Montgomery bus boycott had a carpool, <laughs> right? Because people still have to get to work. Yeah. People still have to get to where they're going. Yeah. And that's what I want to encourage people through through the book as far as the manual part that you're talking about, you know, is like helping people to think more practically and strategically about creating racial progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, damn, you're so deep. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I feel like there's the, the I feel like we're entering we're also surfacing and you talk about this in the book um, some problems. And I think, and as I'm thinking about my role in the next few months, in the next few years with my knowledge base and how I can show up, one of the things you talk about is conflict in Mm. movement space. (laughs) (laughs) And... Yeah, it's it's not just like I I don't think we generally live well with conflict, not just in in, in movement space, but it's not necessarily a a valued skill um, learning how to deal with people emotionally, um, Mm -hmm. learning how to work with our bodies. Yeah. Um, And so one of the questions that I had was as you were talking about kind of building our own tables, institutions, but also like the, how you always say, like we have kind of this failure of imagination. Yeah. What, what, what might we need? Like, have you been able to dream any about like, what would it look like to have, practical systems that could navigate like conflict mm. in spaces. Cause I'm, I'm convinced that that's, uh, that needs to be foundational, like one-on-one level type stuff when entering into movement space. Like, do you know how to navigate conflict? I'm going to just be really real with you. I struggled so much so much with publishing this book because by the time it was time to publish, I just felt like the movement was full of shit. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm not going to say that as though I'm not a part of the shit. You know? So as soon as I say that, I have to say, I'm part of the problem. You know? I was diagnosed with PTSD last year. Largely because of conflict with other activists. Black activists. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to identify them any further, but we could go into their other identities too, and it would just it just gets more complicated and more problematic. And so, I say that to say one of my biggest dis okay here's one thing one one thing that's weakening movements in general is a lack of unity in nonviolent struggle. They have what they call a holy trinity, and unity is. God the Father, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know like, from whence the others proceeded, you know. Um, yeah, so unity is so important. And it's really easy to say that we should be unified. It's, it's even easier to say we as, to say we as Black people should be unified. But unity is complicated, right? Yeah. Solidarity is complicated. All Black people don't have solidarity with one another. We're divided across class and gender and sexuality and nationality and all those kinds of things, right? So that's one thing. The disunity is weakening a lot of movements. And I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. Another thing I think is that we say, all right, I'm not fucking with white people no more. Or I'm not, I'm not fucking with, you know, insert whatever group is symbolic or actually your oppressive counterpart. And we start talking as though the people that we're gonna be around are perfect. The movement people that we're gonna work with, or the people the new people we're gonna surround ourselves with are gonna be perfect. And people have this desire to see people who have perfect politics and perfectly execute their values, perfect praxis, all these things. And I played around with calling it a kind of purity culture, and I, I'm worried about whether or not that was appropriate language, but I think it really is. There is a desire for purity that is unrealistic that I think leads to a kind of hypocrisy. And again, I'm saying I'm part of the problem, right? There, okay, let me get to that in a second. <laughs> Please hold the part where I'm a problem. Skirt! <laughs> Put that on ice, keep it cool for me. I'm coming back to that one. But the hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy that I'm talking about is some of us will march the streets for a dead black man we've never met. And and will say, no matter what he did, he didn't deserve to be killed by the police in the street. No matter what he did, he didn't deserve to be in prison because no one deserves to be in prison because prisons don't do what we say prisons do, right? right? But we don't have that same attitude for living Black people who have it. We cancel each other. I'm not talking about cancel culture, you know? I'm not talking about, you know, people getting called out online and stuff like that. I'm just talking about we cancel each other. Mm -hmm. I've canceled people. 
there are people who are social justice oriented. I'm getting choked up thinking about the people who are committed to justice. They want the same things that I do in the world. And I cut them off. I block their number. I block their, I put a filter on my email so it will go straight to the trash. And I've tried to make amends with them. I've reached out to some, you know, and said, hey, is there any way that we could talk about this? Even if we're not friends anymore, you know, even if, even if we won't be friends after that conversation, is there any way that we can bring some repair? And I don't think that they're going to answer me. And there are people who would probably like to have that conversation with me who I'm not going to answer. Maybe some of this is just life. But there's a part of me that says, aren't we championing a world where we don't cancel each other? Where the state doesn't cancel people, where the state doesn't assign people to civil and social debt. Right? Isn't that the world that we're championing? We can't even practice it with each other. Hmm. Now, I know that the reason why I'm choked up is because I have my own pain around that. Right? Where um, I have felt judged, abandoned, betrayed by people in the movement. And some of that, I feel like, is a part of a very natural and common process that I think Fanon talks about and Paula Freire talks about, where there is a certain part of our development of breaking free and decolonizing, where we can create this very singular and simple binary story where there are good people and there are bad people. And the good people are good and the bad people are entirely bad, right? Mm -hmm. And we can even say, you know, well, you know, white people are categorically bad, right? And there's a way to theorize around that to make that make sense. You know, because you can say some people appear to be white, but they're not actually white because whiteness is, you know, not just about skin color, da da da, da. You can You can do that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, but then, but you can do that. You can say, you know, uh, white people are categorically bad. Men are bad, are categorically bad. Cis people are categorically bad. Straight people are categorically bad, right? And then they become disposable. You said, did you say they become disposable? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, they become disposable. And I have felt disposable in those ways, right? But it's not just, and I, I admit that I have pain around that, but I also have to admit that I have caused that kind of pain mm -hmm. because I've come into the movement with my own trauma. And sometimes I know I'm having a trauma response and this person does something and it reminded me of, some heartbreak I had a long time ago, and I'm just like, I just, I know that this is going to suck, but I can't see you anymore. Mm -hmm. like I, I'm going to block you on social media and all that kind of stuff, and it's not to punish you. It's going to feel like punishment to you, but I'm not trying to punish you, but I also don't know that I have the capacity to see you. Da, 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 da. Yeah. But I think you say, I think you can say like da-da-da-da-da there, but like in that da-da-da-da, there's some really important physiological things right. happening yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, is, there is that right but of course we've not gotten to the point and this is this is also what i wanted to bring up is saying like we don't have really a lot of infrastructure or practice in helping people to see one another 
in their entire humanity, mm-hmm. right? And keeping their humanity intact and dealing with the nuance of these things. And that's why I brought up, I'm not trying to say it's hypocritical, but it is contradictory, right? Because again, we'll march the streets for people we've never known. People we've never even lived in the same city as them and we'll never know them. We don't know their families. We don't know what their voice sounds like. That, that, that. We'll march the streets for those people. You know, we'll walk into the Achilles are sore for some of these people. You know, and maybe it's because it's easier than like actually working through conflict, right? I'm also reading, we do this till we free, free us. Well, first off, We Will Not Cancel This is a great book, Adrian Marie, Adrian Marie Brown, very short. Everyone should read that book. But I'm also reading We Will Not Free Us by Marion Kava. And what is really challenging to me about the idea of abolition and trans, 
performative justice is the idea that the harmed, we prioritize the, the person who has been harmed and make sure that they have what they need in order to be here and to be whole, right? To move on, all that kind of thing. And then we also give attention to the harm doer, right? And what are the conditions that cause them to act that way? To act in that way, understanding that hurt people hurt people. And so we don't lose sight of their humanity either, right? And there is this movement for us to do that because we live under a system that tells us that canceling and punishment and all those things are the way to deal with harm. And we know that it doesn't work. And so we're telling the state to do something or to do something different. But we haven't figured out how to really do that amongst ourselves and our communities for the most part. That's that's where I'm coming from. That's what I see, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of that is that we don't have the infra- infrastructure to do that. We don't have the practice and, and enough practitioners and enough training to do that. And one thing that challenges me from this book that I mentioned, We Do This Till We Free Us, is um, they were talking about... Um, Y'all gonna have to put a content warning on this on this whole episode, right? <laughs> so, but they're talking about you know sexual assault, and they were saying you know about this nuance of yes, we want accountability. We do not want to send these people to prison because we don't believe that prisons should exist, right? Um, and doing that without being rape apologists, right? But one question that they asked, just really powerful, they were saying, in what ways does our culture enable to be accountable? You know, because we don't live in a culture where accountability, not just for that, but I, I mean, obviously, I've, I've, I've never, I've never done that, so like, I don't need that kind of accountability. But in other ways, I do need accountability, right? And accountability is not easy in our culture because we don't have the structures for it, really. The last thing I want to say about that is I've been playing around with this a bit. I can't remember. Oh, it was from my second mushroom trip. My second, my second, my second mushroom trip was with my older brother. My older brother, when we were younger, was a bully. He was a bully. He was a he was a real bully. And I mean, it's hard to convey. It's hard to convey just how toxic that relationship was. Actually, I mentioned it in the book. I said that we had as good a relationship as Israel and Palestine. And a Palestinian person actually reached out to me and said, you know, this is problematic because it gives the it gives the impression that the conflict between Israel and Palestine is just between two parties that have that are different or have different opinions or whatever. And the thing that I'm thinking is you don't know how bad that relationship with my brother is because if you understand Israel as a bully, then that's what I'm telling you about my brother. You know, mm-hmm. and there was there was real concern 
from my mother that my brother would kill me one day mm-hmm. because he said that he would. Oh, mm-hmm. Now, my older brother and I are best friends now. And um, that took many, that took many years. But that mushroom trip, um, I had, I started with the intention that I wanted, because you know, it can rewire your brain. It can help, it can help kind of lay a new coat of snow there and you can create new pathways. And so I wanted to deal with the way that sometimes I'm kind of snappy and the words, the way that I say things don't sound the way that they do to other people in my head. Like, I know, like, someone's going to be offended that I was like, y'all niggas think y'all going to go outside and say, do you find the police? And then Foss is going to come back to Pride Rock. And it's gonna work. <laughs> I don't know why it, it, that's just how it sounds in my head. So I'm like, but I know that sounds really like you didn't have to say it that way. <laughs> Oh, I love you so much. <laughs> I understand, right? The amount of mental gymnastics I sometimes have to do to get the the verbalized product because my brain is just that direct as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I go into this mushroom trip hoping that I can deal with that. Now, you know, psychedelics is all about your intention and your set and mental set, your setting and set, right? So I already am going in trying to get into my shadow, which I didn't think about before I did. If I thought about <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. If I thought about this... If you would have had a God, bitch. <laughs> if I had thought about that before I did this, then I might have had a, a more, a less challenging trip. But I literally am starting this trip going, I'm going into my shadow. Oh, wow, man. Oh, wow. So the trip starts, and I'm, like, really anxious, and I'm, you know, seeing all this stuff that's really hard to see. And I call my brother, and I'm like, will you please just come and be here with me? Mm -hmm. And he was kind of busy, but then he was like, all right, all right. And then, actually, what's really funny, too, is his car broke down not far from the house. So, serendipity, fate, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but he really had nothing else to do, at a, you know. And so he came, and we sat in my mother's living room. And I'm, on, I'm lying on the floor, and you know how shrooms are, you know, just enjoy the colors. Oh, wait, y'all in North Carolina, you have no idea what shrooms are like. No, <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Which picked Olivia above for you? You know because you watched the Netflix documentary about psychedelics. I know. So. That is so good. I you learned so much. We have to create stories and narratives. Oh, and I like, learned so much. I was yes. like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this like, earth is very cool. And I'm enjoying the colors and stuff. And all of a sudden, I look across the room, and my brother, my brother looks like he is an angel. And I told him, I said, Chris, you look like an angel. And we're talking about this, and 
I was, and then I said to him, did you ever resent our family for not seeing how beautiful you are? And we talked about, you know, all of these things. And I said, you know, I just feel like when I was younger, no, sorry, before I want to tell you that, I said, Chris, tell me a time, tell me about a time when you were my guardian angel, but I didn't realize it. And so Chris told me about this time when I said something smart to someone in elementary school and they all wanted to beat me up. And he went and he fought them by himself. And I didn't even know about it. And I knew that he carried that in his heart for a long time because we didn't get along. And it's partly why he resented me. It's because he was my guardian angel in many ways when I was younger. And I didn't know. And so I said to him, I said, I just felt like you were a bully. It was really, I mean, it wasn't that. I said those words, but it was like, you know, just feel like when you were younger, I paused and just you. <laughs> and he said the words that I think anyone who was trying to express something to someone who's caused them harm was to hear. He just said, I know. That's it. No excuse, no explanation, no justification, no alternate narrative, just I know. And that healed so much of the past. I mean, we were already friends by then. But anything that was still outstanding just those two words healed all of that. Mm. So I held out my pinky to him and I said, okay, Chris, give me your pinky. Now, I was not that high anymore. I was coming down, but I was like, I'm going to milk this. (laughs) 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 Because he's going to let me get away with a lot because I still have this psilocybin in my system. (laughs) So, I said, give me a pinky. And he gave me his pinky and pinky promise. I said, okay. Today you and I have a new story. The new story is that you have always been my guardian angel. Oh, wow. Do you? And he said, okay. I said, I love you. He said, I love you. And we hugged. And now, when I'm having a hard time, or I have a song that I want someone to give me feedback on, or whatever, I call my older brother. So I tell this story to say, I believe that restoration is actually possible. I believe that healing is actually possible and all of that. And I think that we have to be willing to do that in our movements if we want for them to be strong. I think that that moment with my brother is a little taste of the kind of world that we're trying to build. But I don't see a lot of people who are willing to do it.
so deep, so profound. And yet you have encouraged me, I think, to have hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think... I think we're doing something right now that we also have never done. Like you said, that's never been done before. We have like rhymes of the past, but to navigate this in the age of the internet, Mm -hmm. in the age of acceleration, in the age of surveillance. Yeah. Um, where we don't have, you know, a good portion of us don't have literal shackles um, that identify us. I think it gets harder um, because we're having to root into our humanity in a different way. Yeah. Um, And so... What I do know is that sometimes rupture, there needs to be space and time. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, you know, the open questions for me is like, how do we normalize that space? And it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not blocking you because I think you're a shit person, but like for both of us, for both of our health, for yeah. both of our safety, for both of our flourishing. And maybe we can come back together and maybe not. And that's okay. And right. we can still want the same things. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard thing that we are being called into and learning in a very real way. But in a way that you know we've never had to do it this way <laughs> before mm-hmm. with ac- with this much access as well and that that's both a blessing i think at times and also amplifies the intensity of of, of the struggle i i agree with you and i think that we just have to get really clear about what's our vision for tomorrow mm-hmm. and i write about that in the book but we have to get very clear what kind of world do we want to build? Because, you know, there maybe people disagree with this, but, you know, the folks that I read, that I've read, you know, to understand social change, social progress, a lot of times a theme emerges that the ends need to, the means need to match the end. And one of the strengths of nonviolent struggle has been that people usually have to practice the the cultures and the same behaviors and all those kind of things that they will need in the kind of world that they want to build, right? Mm-hmm. Nonviolent struggle is usually democratic, you know, um, and so on and so forth. And so it doesn't mean like perfection is out of the question. Right. That's that's not that's that can't be a goal. And purity is out of the question. And handling these things perfectly is out of the question. But I do think we need to get clear about what world are we really trying to build, because then we need to make the means match it. 
right? Mm. Otherwise, we're just going to be virtual virtue signaling online until climate disaster claims us all. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I hate to be that you know bleak about it, you know, but like, you know, <laughs> the dog agrees. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but we have we, we have to get clear about what kind of world we want to build because even if we have to separate, you know, and conflict happens, you know, conflict happens. It's a part of relationship, you know. Oh, I we 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 can do it in a healthier way, yeah. you know, and we need that internally, you know. And so it's one thing. To, to write, you know, all the white friends I couldn't keep and talk about how these dynamics of white supremacy into these different relationships. But I keep joking around about how my next book is going to be These Niggas Don't Want to Be Thank you so Thank much, friend. You. you are fantastic. Yeah. I, I, you. I just appreciate you. Bye. <laughs> See you. Bye. <laughs>for joining us on permission to be you can learn more about today's guests by going to permission to be podcast.com we are also on all the social medias you can find us on instagram and facebook at permission to be podcast or twitter at permission to underscore b we would love to hear from you and let us know who you might want to have on as our next guest if you will leave us a rating and review in your review you can put the name of people or persons who you think might be a great guest for the permission to be podcast we hope you have a wonderful day